From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Right now, though, we are taking a look at something else coming from the provincial government and more reaction is coming in after the NDP announced yesterday that it is not going to proceed with proposed amendments to the Land Act in this province. This after holding a series of meetings with stakeholders saying that officials heard they need to take time for further engagement and to demonstrate the benefits of shared decision making in action. So what does that to actually mean? Joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Terry Tiji, Regional Chief of the BC Assembly of First Nations. Terry Tiji, thank you so much for being with us today. Good afternoon. What is your response to uh, the uh, the kind of turn, change of course with the government uh, cons- consulting on this, talking about uh, this proposed change, and now pulling back saying they're not going to go forward? Well, I think it's, uh, disappointing. Um, you know, this was an opportunity to bring certainty to, to the land, uh, how decisions are made. And certainly everybody has uh, been questioning that, the land question, uh, especially industry, um, who've always stated, like, who are the landlords? Who are the decision makers? That's all we want to know on how decisions are made. So right now it's status quo and um you know, if there is a controversial project out there, uh, there's no mechanism to uh, really get a decision on it. And potentially, uh, you know, one thing that we wanted to avoid when we implemented the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples was to avoid court cases. So potentially, uh, you know, if there is a project out there, any decisions made on First Nations land, there's a potential uh, court case and litigation. So when you say, though, that this was a way to bring certainty, the, the the opposite argument had been made that it would actually bring uncertainty because there would be maybe projects that were being proposed and they could be shut down, shut down if there wasn't consensus. So how do you think it would have brought certainty? Well, I, I, you know, the amendments, all, all, all they did was allow to, to begin the process of how decision making would happen for uh, perhaps certain projects uh, with uh, all levels of government, including First Nations. And and this was, you know, really the crux of the issue many First Nations had. And, and this is why there's been many court cases where First Nations were victorious, I would say, with Adelka Mukistewe, Silkotin, Haida, etc., uh, would have created... Uh, a space where decisions uh, would be made together, a process perhaps for a dispute resolution. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, if there is a controversial place, that perhaps maybe development shouldn't happen there. So really it brings a, a level of certainty earlier on in uh, perhaps the environmental assessment process and or any decisions that are made prematurely that move along with development that uh, didn't allow for First Nations to have a say. This is the, a process that allowed uh, First Nations governance to, to enact and have a say in how a development occurs in their lands. 
Uh, right. And, and, but, and I think it was maybe the wording or how the wording was being interpreted that was getting a lot of attention. We heard earlier when this kind of first came about and we'd uh, heard about this or, or found out about w- what stage this was at, a quote from Kevin Falcon, the leader of BC United. Uh, he put out a statement and in that statement, he said that his party could not support giving veto power to 5% of the population with impacts to over 90 of public land, uh, referring uh, to First Nations uh, groups in this province. What do, do you think that's what this proposed amendment actually did? Well, first of all, the 95% or 100% of, of these lands are, are First Nations lands. Uh, the vast majority unceded, unsurrendered, unless they were under the historical treaties and or modern treaties or any other arrangements. So uh, this is, you know, uh, when the, the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People Act passed Bill C-41 five years ago, it was supported by all parties, including Kevin Falcon's party, uh, which was, used to be the Liberals. So it, it's uh, puzzling to me because at that point we, we were talking about having some level of, of certainty in how decisions are made and not having to come to uh, what we call war in the woods or war in, in, in these places where there's a lot of dispute. So uh, to me, it's um, uh, these processes are just the beginning of making some level of, of certainty on the land where all decisions decisions are made together by all levels of government. And the courts have stated that, that First Nations have the ability to govern on their lands. So uh, here was the process that would have allowed that. Uh, my guest is Terry TG, Regional Chief of the BC Assembly of First Nations. Uh, Terry, the word veto, I think, is what's getting a lot of attention as well. And Kevin Falcon used it in that statement, uh, the quote that I just mentioned. And that's also been uh, been used as well, that, that, that idea of veto power. Uh, do you think that was a legitimate concern, though, that, that if the Land Act was amended, if these amendments went through, it would give specific groups, specific First Nations, the power to veto developments uh, for whatever reason? No. Uh, I I spoke to this uh, over four years ago in the legislature talking about veto, that we need to create a respectful place for all levels of government to make decisions together. The point of of really implementing Bill C-41 was to create that space that allowed First Nations to to make decisions on their own lands. And uh, there too, that uh, we accepted that uh, there is no veto by any government. Uh, So ultimately, this was a process where, uh, you know, decisions would be made together. And that was committed to uh, going this November five years. And uh, it was agreed to by all members of the Legislative Assembly at that time including the, uh, the, the, the two biggest uh, critics, uh, Kevin Falcon and John Rustad, also agreed to, to uh, the implementation of the United Nations Declaration as, uh, as law. 
But when you talk about the, the land, and again, in, in Kevin Falcon's quote, and even in the, I think, the, the proposed amendments, it talks about uh, the 95% of public land. It talks about that being crown land. But, but if you're saying that's actually First Nations land, then doesn't that, doesn't that open it up that there would be scenarios where there are going to be groups? There would probably be scenarios where, where First Nations are disagreeing with First Nations, but that could mean nothing goes forward because there's nobody, there's no consensus. Uh, quite possibly. This is why that the process has to take, uh, we have to go down this road uh, where we can uh, create those dispute resolutions because ultimately uh, the dispute resolution we have is going to court. Uh, and we've all seen the results of many of these court decisions where they've stated that title exists in Silcoton territory, that uh, Delgamook is stay away, that First Nations have a right to say well, how development occurs. Ultimately, the judge in those cases, who becomes the quasi-arbitrator, uh, just states to the First Nations and government to go back to the table and work something out. So ultimately, we end up at the same place. So really, I think these amendments would allow to just bypass that, create that table, make decisions together, perhaps have a dispute resolution, and move ahead with uh, some level of certainty. That's what this is all about. Uh, one of the other uh, one of the other examples I know that was was talked about when this when this did come about and when there was uh, so much uh, so much conversation was Joffrey Lakes and the the closing of that park to the public and the the closing of it by the First Nation. Uh, I know there was then uh, conversations had with the BC government about trying to find a resolution. But one of the the I think uh, one of the uh, arguments that came forward was would this not open it up that we would see similar scenarios like Joffrey Lakes throughout the province and again creating that uncertainty over places that are considered to be public lands? Well, I think, you know, with, with public lands and uh, First Nations lands, this is where we come up with the issue of War of the Woods. This is why it's so important to respect uh, some First Nations that do have land use plans. And also, you know, land use planning is, is probably one of the most important aspects of uh, land development and also in terms of the land act um Joffrey lakes perhaps you know there's sensitive areas perhaps some of those areas should have never been developed and if we do have uh you know a level of dispute then we're gonna have to figure this out we're gonna have to have some sort of dispute resolution rather than going to court and and then figure this out and make decisions together this is the whole point of of reconciliation I mean, these, you know, the statements that are being made publicly by some of these um, naysayers uh, is, is a threat to reconciliation. And I think, you know, one of the things that uh, has, has come up time and again within British Columbia is that First Nations have the right to protect their, their lands, their territories, and their ability, and their say in terms of how development occurs. So where do you think things go from here uh, at this point? Clearly, even though uh, the B.C. government has said uh, it wasn't because of these concerns that came forward, it wasn't because this would give veto power to some groups. Uh, they're, they're saying it wasn't that reason that they've now stopped going ahead with these amendments, which I think uh, a lot of people are questioning that because if that wasn't the case, then why would they stop? But they, they have stopped. They've announced that they are not going to go ahead with these changes at this point. So in your mind, then, what happens next? Well, I think, uh, you know, we, we carry on. 
with the process. Uh, I think these uh, amendments need to happen. I think perhaps the, the process itself could have been a, a lot better shared in terms of communications. Um, I, I think the public has, needs to get a better understanding of what uh, under means. Uh, industry, uh, some industry needs to better understand what uh, these Land Act amendments. But I've been in, in contact with some of industry and, and they're they're okay with these amendments. And, and they're saying the same thing. It, it brings more certainty. Uh, at least we know who to contact, who to uh, get the blessing of in terms of, uh, you know, uh, you know, especially decisions, especially controversial decisions on development. So I think we, we're in this. Uh, First Nations are in uh, with the implementation of the United Nations Declaration Act. Uh, I, I don't think government should come in and do half measures, we have to be fully in. If we're really going to have reconciliation, we need the public, we need governments, all level of governments, uh, to to accept and adopt under, uh, in court, to have true reconciliation with First Nations, especially here in British Columbia. All right, well, we will certainly be uh, watching to see what happens next with this. Terry TG, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. on this Thursday afternoon. It is budget day in BC and we are just waiting now. Any moment we should hear from the finance minister and get all of the details from the budget. When that gets underway, we're going to check in with Keith Baldry, Global News Legislative Bureau Chief. But what are people looking for and hoping for in this budget? Well, earlier today, we heard from Jess Ketchum, who is the founder of Save Our Streets, and he talked with Global News about what his group would like to see. We recognizing that the budget is today, we thought that it would be important to uh, bring forward the uh, the cost to an average family of um, just resale crime, just resale crime uh, in BC. So we have a, a group of uh, loss prevention uh, professionals who who um, come from our, our membership and who have over the last um, few weeks have worked hard at coming up with what that number might be what what it costs um, the average family in British Columbia. So they looked at the the amount of um, of theft from uh, retail operations, <clears throat> the cost of security, the additional cost of of security that's been required from these businesses over the past few years, and then came up with a number. The number is quite staggering. We hear all the time about the increases in cost of gas or the, cost of your groceries or rent, but the cost of retail crime in BC costs the average family $824 a year. That's a significant amount of money, as you well know. And so we thought that it was important to bring that forward, to get that part of the discussion into the the, uh, narrative around the budget. All right, that was Jess Ketchum, founder of Save Our Streets, uh, talking about what they would like to see. So what is in the budget? Well, Keith Baldry is with us now, Global News Legislative Bureau Chief. Uh, Keith, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here, Jill. Another another year, another budget lockup. <laughs> yes, you're you're used to it. You've done you've done this a couple of times before. Uh, I know the the finance minister is now delivering the budget. You've been looking at it all day. So what are some of the highlights? 
Yeah, no, no terrible surprises here. We knew it's an election year budget, so we knew it was going to be a heavy spending budget, and that's exactly what's happened. Uh, record uh, deficit ever projected, $7.9 billion. It'll likely come in lower than that, but that's the highest ever projected uh, deficit if it holds. A uh, huge increase in capital spending, almost $19 billion. Uh, the, as expected, there's a new electricity affordability credit. It works out to about $100 on your hydro bill over the course of the year. I found that rather underwhelming. 100 bucks doesn't take you very far. Uh, there's also an, an expansion of the family bonus, a family benefit bonus. It's going to capture more people now. Families that earn up to $162,000 are now going to be eligible for this, which can work out to more than $1,300 a year. Uh, the employer health tax uh, threshold, as expected, has been lifted, uh, doubled from 500000 to a $1 million. That's going to affect a lot of small and mid-sized uh, businesses favorably. Um, healthcare gets the biggest uh, lift of all, $4.2 billion. Uh, some of that's been earmarked for about $90 million for cancer care, $70 million for mental health, $45 million for senior and community care. Uh, again, it, it, no terrible uh, surprises here. Again, because it's a, an election, you, uh, they're not going to be frugal. Also, as expected, a flipping tax. So a, two, a 20% tax on any profits you make if you sell your property within two years of its original purchase. And that had been expected. And here's one that was not talked about. It's interesting. Uh, the government will now fund in vitro fertilization uh, treatment for one cycle for for uh, per person, which again was not uh, I don't think even anticipated. So as expected, to sum up, a uh, big spending uh, a budget, a big deficit, record level, uh, and again no uh, new taxes, but more some uh, tax tinkering with the health employer tax, and. Uh, top up of the family benefit bonus. So a lot in there. And like you said, you, you can kind of tell when it's an election year and when these budgets are coming out. The, the employee health tax, you mentioned, that that is going to be big. And we've certainly heard from businesses. They've been asking for that. I think they were even asking for a bit more than, uh, higher were, than the $1 million. They were looking for $1.5 million. So this is going to please some, but not all. Uh, so it falls short of what uh, a lot of employers were looking for, but it basically doubles the current threshold, which is going to capture uh, a number of businesses favorably. According to the budget, according to the government, 90% of the businesses now in BC will not pay this employee uh, health tax. And when you talked also about the flipping tax, and uh, we heard the Premier saying a few weeks ago that the flipping tax was coming. So does that mean on top of if, if it's a 20% tax, if if you sell your home within a year, is that on, on top of, because uh, already, isn't there a capital gains tax? Yes. Well, on your principal residence, there is not a capital gains tax. But if you if you're on your if it's not your residence, yeah, right, there is a capital gains tax, and this will be on top of that. Is my understanding? There will be exemptions uh, for such you know life changing events such as separation or divorce or death or disability, uh, relocation of work, um, involuntary job loss. So there is a fair number of. of uh, of exceptions or exemptions uh, to this new tax. But again, it's, it's 20% on the profit you make uh, from selling your home within two years. Hmm, interesting. That's uh, going to be interesting to see reaction uh, to that one uh, as well. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. the deficit. This is the biggest ever deficit. And, and I, I would imagine there, there were questions about that and asking the government to kind of, uh, kind of back that up or explain yeah. why. Yeah, and uh, Finance Minister Katrina Conroy was asked that almost right off the bat. 
Um, how can you, do you think people are accepting a, a record level uh, deficit? She anticipated that question, obviously, and she, and she even sort of said it yesterday in her pre-budget comments. Although this is not the time to be cutting services. This is the time to be expanding things at a time when uh, people are struggling, even at high incomes. It's so remarkable that Premier David Eby last week uh, put people, families earning close to $200,000 in the category of people who need help because housing costs for so many people are so astronomically high, even high incomes uh, do not have a, a free spending uh, lifestyle because they just don't, all their money goes into their housing costs. So the, the tip-off was there from the Premier and the Finance Minister going into this, that this was going to be a large deficit. Uh, you know, last year's budget was part of a three-year fiscal plan. So it's an ongoing three-year fiscal plan. So according to the fiscal plan, that was put in motion last year. This year's uh, deficit was supposed to be $3.7 billion, so it's basically more than doubled what it had been projected as recently as last year. A reflection, I think, of a couple of things. One, we're an election year, obviously. Uh, people are looking for proverbial goodies. And two, the shift by the government up to the view that middle-income earners now need some sort of protection, uh, and that means some sort of payback from the government uh, in ways that we haven't seen before. Anywhere in here, do, does Surrey schools fall under any of these headlines? No. <laughs> we, we, she was asked that. Uh, there's only one new school that's on the list that wasn't there last year, and it's actually over here in Victoria uh, Middle School. There's ongoing construction of a couple of schools that were already announced in Surrey from last year, but no new names on the list of new capital projects in terms of schools other than the single facility over here in Victoria. All right. Well, uh, a lot to, to digest, lots in that budget. Keith, thank you so much. I know it's a very busy day for you uh, being in the lockup and now with all of the reaction to it. So thank you so much for doing this. Anytime, Joe. Take care. Thanks for being with us. It is BC Budget Day. We have been talking about some of the highlights just announced by BC's finance minister. And joining me now to talk a little bit more about this is Mike Hurley, vice chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council, also the mayor of Burnaby. Mayor Hurley, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me on. Well, I, I know you're wearing a couple of different hats. I want to start by talking transportation. Anything in the budget that sticks out to you that addresses the needs and transportation in the region? Well, no, actually, there's nothing in the budget uh, relating to TransLink funding at all, which is, uh, we're not really surprised by that, but we're disappointed at the same time. Uh, the, our transit system uh, within Metro Vancouver is in a crisis and uh, we really need to be able to start to move forward and prepare for the future order of where we have proposed doubling our bus services and we need to get on with that work. Uh, the mayors have spent a long time putting together a 10-year plan and, and there's nothing in this budget that we have seen so far that will assist us in, in getting to the places we need to be especially when we're faced with the housing crisis. You know, trans transit goes hand-in-hand hand with the housing crisis. You hear it spoken about all the time, uh, transit-oriented development. Uh, but unfortunately, while we, there's a lot of talk about housing in the budget, uh, very, very little to do, certainly nothing to do with transit that we've seen in there. But I should say we are still in discussions with the government, but we... Um, you know, we're getting to the end of the line, and within a week, we, we're going to need to have some answers about whether there's going to be any funding available for 
our TransLink services or not. So, so within a week, we should know more, and uh, then the mayors will have some decisions to make on uh, trying to chart a path forward. Uh, do you think it's because this being an election year that it was perhaps held out of the budget that this will be more part of the platform or the focus will be more on transportation uh, in that sense? Well, I would hope so because transit certainly will pay will, will be playing a big role going forward, especially if we want to focus on building our cities the way that everyone states that we're going to build our cities. But uh, we haven't heard anything that would lead us to believe that it'll be thought of uh, as we move into the election. Uh, that could change, of course. But, uh, but we're still hopeful that we can come to uh, an agreement to at least let us stabilize the system for now and to start planning for the future. Um, so I'll reserve my judgment on that for now. Uh, and when you say, though, that in a week or so or within a week, uh, you're expecting or hoping to hear more, uh, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, we have plans to make from the Mayor's Council. We have decisions to make, uh, you know, relating to how TransLink is going to be funded. And we're running out of time uh, if we're going to be able to make any moves from our side uh, in partnership with the provincial government. So, we're, we're really getting to the end of the line here. and We've been discussing this with the provincial province for a long time. Is it uh, with the with the the numbers that were released today? And again, this is a deficit. It's forecast to be the highest ever in B.C. history. It is a forecast, but uh, we'll see if the numbers play out, showing that the, the upcoming fiscal year uh, forecast to have a five point nine billion dollar deficit growing to seven point nine billion in the next fiscal year. Uh, is that concerning, though, that those numbers are so high? And again, that's without the inclusion of transportation. Yeah, well, it's it's always concerning, uh, you know, when when things get as high as that. However, governing is a matter of priorities, and uh, you know, if transit is is a priority for for this government or, or any other government, including the federal government, then they should be planning to put the transit in place. Uh, we're being told to build more and more homes for more and more people. We're told there's going to be a million more people in 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 uh, bc in the next before 2032 so you know transit has to be and must be a part of the the solutions um uh, going forward so as far as we're concerned it should be at the top of the priority list but certainly this budget wouldn't uh, lead you there to think that it is at the top of the priority list but we're still hopeful that we can work something out with the government all right. Uh, hopefully, I'm uh, hoping to switch over to your hat uh, as Burnaby Mayor. There, There is a lot of talk about housing in this budget. Uh, as expected, it includes a flipping tax. It uh, also uh, ups the BC of the electricity, uh, the affordability credit. That's going to be a one-time average credit or a rebate of about $100. Uh, it uh, also uh, it uh, widens the uh, property ta- transfer tax exemption for first-time buyers. Uh, are these things that you think Burnaby residents, or will this help uh, residents of Burnaby as far as making things a little bit more affordable? Well, I think, you know, I, I think it will in, in, a, in a very small way, and, and hopefully it helps more people than I think it will, just looking at it from very quickly. Um, I know everyone's trying to make things uh, more affordable, and certain affordability is on the top of 
everyone's agenda. So I'm hoping that those changes will really assist uh, residents of Burnaby. Um, you know, I'm more concerned, though, about delivering on housing and, uh, and how the funds that we keep hearing are available for housing get dispersed and get dispersed in a much more common sense way, uh, which I think is really the real reason that we're not able to build as much housing as we need. And when you say that, are you talking about BC Builds, which was recently announced, or, or other programs? Yeah, BC, all the programs, but BC Builds too. I'm hoping that they bring a more common sense lens uh, to 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 how those funds are are doled out uh, to to different groups that need it, uh, rather than bogging it down too much in in red tape and. Uh, and things that I think just slows things down and doesn't meet any of the needs that we all see, and that's to get housing built really quickly. Is that what you see happening right now as far as red tape, or where do you think things are, are kind of getting stuck? Well, I think it's it's just too complicated. You know, if you deal with BC Housing and if you deal with CMHC, I mean, you, you, you can drive yourself crazy trying to work through the maze of different things that you have to work through. And, and so I see that as really the biggest cause of not being able to get the housing built that we all need built and the affordable housing we need. Uh, so I, I'm hoping that everyone can sit down at the table and figure out a common sense way to uh, get through this maze that's been created by too much bureaucracy. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mayor Hurley, for joining us and for talking more about the budget today as both vice chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council and mayor of Burnaby. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.